not drinking is not a replacement for drinking, just not drinking. So you have to find ways to deal with the pain that is surely going to come along with everything else that you have been you know, blunting out for so long. And, you know, so I, I have, dude, the things I have to do on a daily basis just to stay like on the better side of middle are ridiculous. Um, and I'm someone who is in pain a lot. That was Laura McCowan, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 92. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing and one thing only, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. I promise that no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life by offering a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that you can often expect to hear adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you also won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you, thank you so much. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you are saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a big thank you, you'll get access to over 30 hours of bonus content with new fun stuff added every month, as well as our community discussion page, our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I talk about my real life in real time and more. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Laura McCowan. Laura is a writer, yoga teacher, speaker, and recovery advocate. She writes an internationally recognized award-winning blog at lauramccowan.com, and she's the co-host of The Home Podcast, a show that takes up the big questions of life through the lens of addiction recovery. 
Laura earned her MBA from Babson College and worked in advertising and marketing for 15 years, where she led international teams and managed what she calls stupidly large marketing budgets for Fortune 50 companies. In 2016, she made the leap to entrepreneurship and now writes, teaches yoga-based workshops and retreats all over the U.S., and consults on marketing, personal branding, and online business strategy. Laura lives with her daughter on the North Shore of Boston and is currently writing her first book, a memoir. In this episode, Laura shares one beautifully honest story after another, covering everything from sobriety to motherhood to creative work and writing and more. She talks about how difficult it was for her to get sober, and we dig into the damaging cultural depictions of drinking that keep many of us stuck. We also talk more generally about the many challenges of trying to change your life and the frustration when change winds up taking much longer than you hoped. Laura tells us her thoughts on the purpose of pain, the healing power of writing, and how to tell the actual truth about your life. This conversation was an absolute joy for me, and Laura's openness makes it truly one of my favorite episodes to date. I hope that you love it and her as well. All of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. Okay, awesome. We are good to go. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me about the first hour of your day today. How'd your day start? (laughs) Oh, I love that question. Today was kind of different in that, so I share custody of my daughter with my ex-husband, and she is with me this week. We trade off weeks, and I did a a rare thing that I almost never do last night, which I, I have her this week, and I had her stay at a friend's house, like a family friend's house, um, because I went to the Ryan Adams concert by myself, took myself on a date. So this morning when I woke up, uh, I went over to get my daughter, um, from someone else's house at like six in the morning and then started the normal daily routine of, you know, getting her ready for school and making coffee. Well, I make coffee first. Let's be honest about that. (laughs) Very first thing that happened was I made coffee and then, uh, and then I picked her up and I was just still so uh, still like high from that concert. It was just so good. And it was so cool to go by myself. I, it's a, I've done a lot of things by myself, but not go to a, a show. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I spend a lot of time by myself, but mm-hmm. I don't know, man, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the last time that I did something and not necessarily that a concert is so expensive, but something like sort of like spendy by myself, yeah. right? Like I'll go on a hike alone or, you know, that kind of stuff, which is, is lovely mm-hmm. in its own way. But I can't remember the last time I thought this is an event that I really want to go to and I'm going to pay for it and choose to go alone. And that's kind right. of, I, I think I should probably do that. <laughs> It's so good. I I didn't plan on going alone. It wasn't the plan, but it turned out that way. And I was going to back out um, because I'm tired. It's been a long week. But I was like, God, why would I do that? I love, I love him, Ryan Adams. And he's one of my, you know, the few of my favorites that I have never seen live. And I'm so, I got there and I was like, what? I am so glad, you know, one of those moments where it's like, God, I would, I'm so glad I didn't miss this. Yeah, I, this, it's funny, I I didn't know that this is what you were going to bring up. And that's awesome. So (laughs) let's talk about it. Because I feel like for me, 
my tendency to want to be at home, like there is just such the comfort bubble Mm. of like, these are where the snacks are. And like, I can go to the bathroom a thousand times a day and like, it's easy and I can go to bed at my regular time. Like I'm very much kind of a creature of that routine and habit that it seems sometimes to be this like Herculean effort to get myself to do things, right? Like totally. to go to a concert or do that. And like, I always, even the things that I want to do, I'm so resistant to doing them. And then I do them and they're amazing. And it's like, I have to relearn that lesson literally every week. <laughs> oh yeah. No, me too. And I, I totally feel you. And I, I'll never forget, like one of my friends, this was a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, we, I was at a job where I was working. uh, It was a startup. I was working around the clock and he, it was like six or seven at night and we were still at the office and he's like, did you bring your running clothes? I was like, yeah, but I don't know I want to go. I just want to go home or whatever. And he, he's like, no, let's go. Let's go for a run. It's beautiful out. And we ran from Cambridge. Uh, I live in Boston. We ran from Cambridge down um, the Charles River um, and across all these bridges. And it was one of those like magical, just uh, gorgeous, perfect nights. And we we and the temperature was perfect in the air, and it was something was very magical about it. And I will never forget him looking at me and being like, "See, good things happen when you go out." <laughs> I was like, oh, you're so right. I feel like I need to write that on a post-it and like stick it on my face. Good things happen when you like speak to other humans. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, but it's tricky because good things also happen. You know, I was also someone who just always went out because I couldn't be alone with myself and I had to stay home for a long time and be, learn to be with myself at home. And that is is beautiful too. Mm. So I think it's like one of those one of those balances that are always trying to figure out. Uh, but sometimes, God, it's worth it. Like last night, I would have been so sad had I missed that. It was a, it was one of the best nights of my life for real. <laughs> I love it. So I'm talking to you at a really good time is what you're saying. <laughs> you are today. I'm like, I'm high on music and Ryan Adams and I had great seats and oh, doing it by myself. Yeah. Tell me about the memoir that you are working on. Yes. So, so this memoir, um, I started writing it, I want to say almost two years ago, I started just the, that I, maybe even longer that I knew I was going to do it. Um, and I started piecing things together and then I have since gone back to it and left it and gone back to it and left it. And, um, started it over once completely. Um, and it's about, I I intended to write a memoir about my addiction and recovery story, alcohol addiction recovery story. And it is about that, but it's turning out to be a lot about my marriage. Well, I started writing a lot about my marriage and that was sticky territory because we, when I started it, we had only been separated a couple of years and it was still very fresh. And I realized as I was writing, I kept, I kept going back to that, but I didn't really know, like I didn't, didn't have focus on it yet. You know, I didn't really understand it yet. And as the, as time goes by, I'm able to see what happened more clearly. And, and now it's become an even bigger story about not just my marriage, but my, the bigger context of my relationship to men. Mm. And so it's, 
it's become a lot about that really, uh, along with the addiction and recovery stuff, but it's become a lot more about that. And so I'm, I'm doing it. I'm like clicking away and it is, uh, it is hard. It is very hard to write a memoir. I am great at, I think you said when we, we were talking before, you're a great sprint worker, like a sprint runner. You like to do a bunch of work and then go away from it for a while. And I, and the same with writing. I love writing essays. Love it. Um, books, very hard, very different animal. Um, and I've never done it before. So I'm learning how to do it. What but is it's been it? beautiful. It's like, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, what is it about it that makes it hard for you? Mm. Sorry, coffee. Everything is hard about it because one is um, I am writing about a time in my life that was extremely painful, many times in my life that were extremely painful. So a lot of it is reliving that. Um, you know, a lot of the, the darker days of my drinking, a lot of the very dark days of my marriage and a lot of pain from the past. Um, that's hard. Uh, it is also hard because I, like I said, I don't have the focus on, on so much of it yet. I'm kind of writing my way to understanding it. Mm. and that that's hard it's like being in a long therapy session (laughs) (laughs) you know the way like if you I don't know if you've ever done therapy but I have of course sometimes you leave I and I oftentimes when I leave therapy I have like a migraine like I have to take a nap um and and that's been my experience of writing this too it it really does um empty me and And then it's just the act of doing it, you know, like I, it's not the, I don't get paid to do it. It's not the only thing I'm doing certainly. And so it's the time and, and finding um, the space to, to create the space for it Yeah. Um, Yeah. over a sustained period of time, which is not my forte. I am the same. I'm a, I, uh, yeah, I, I have a hard time staying focused on, on one thing for for a long time. So it's been a test on, on all yeah. those fronts. Yeah, no, I mean, I can completely relate to that. I do really well with sort of deadlines and constraints. And, you know, with a project like that, I mean, I've never, I've never written a book. It's funny, I just finished a writing project that was probably, it's like 33,000 words. It's kind of the largest project writing project that I've done. Mm. And I had to almost like make myself like fake constraints, right? Or different things. Like it's, it's funny how, anyway, we have to do the little tricks to, you know, like work within whatever works for us. Totally. I mean, I, I, I realized about a few weeks ago, like I have to give myself really some, some people and some structure or I won't, or this won't happen. And uh, so I, so I made that happen. You know, I have an editor now and, it's good, but it, it's just, you know, when the first time you've done something, we don't, as adults, we don't, I don't know, do new things, like totally new big things all that often. Um, and so this has been one of those, you know, it's like completely new and very big. Um, and it's, and at the same time, it's, it's also like, I, I love it. I mm-hmm. love working on it and tinkering with it and thinking about it and I'm looking at my walls right now it's like my entire outline is 
posted on like note cards all over my wall and it's fun. Yeah. It it feels good to really care about something. I, that's something that came up for me with this particular writing project that I just finished that it was the first time in a, in a long time that I had this type of creative project that, you know, was at that point sort of just for me, right? Before something's public or before you have an editor or a friend or whatever to send it to. But to just really care, intrinsically really want it to have happen, that's a feeling that I for I forgot how powerful and wonderful that is. Oh, so true. It's so true. And you realize like how much you miss that uh, and how precious it is when it's happening. Yeah, I also found, and I have no idea if, if this is something you can relate to, I I mean, I tend to be a pretty anxious person in general, and the days in which I was working the hardest on this thing that I cared about was, I had no anxiety. Like, it was just, like, there was something you mentioned, kind of the emptying out feeling, right, which can be exhausting and painful sometimes, but for me, the flip side of that is, like, the anxiety monsters are quiet because I'm doing the work. Oh, that's so true, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, what what uh what they call flow and why it is because you because I mean I think don't you think the reason that you feel that way is because you kind of forget yourself yeah yeah and afterwards I feel like I did something that mattered to me that's right like it's different than just I answered a bunch of emails right? <laughs> like it's so satisfying yeah exactly yeah it's like how I feel about every time I read a book like I've never felt like time time spent reading books is lost you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or running or doing yoga for me or I don't know. There's very few things like that, but I totally get it. Yeah. So I want to talk more about, I don't know if writing style is is the right way to phrase it, but I find that you're such a clear, actually honest writer. I've been thinking a lot lately about the difference between actual truth and performed truth, or I don't know, maybe a better way to say it is I've experienced, um, as both a writer and I think as a reader, a difference between wanting to tell the truth about your life and wanting to tell the truth about your life as long as it will be well-received. And I (laughs) don't think that those are the same. And so I'm curious, I don't know, maybe like talk me through your evolution as a public vocal truth teller. Like even, I mean, even the little things you share on Instagram, like I just feel like this is true or your blog, like this is true. Like it hits me in a way that I feel like you've tapped into something that is rare. Thank you. That's a very huge compliment to me. I so appreciate it. Um, yeah, uh, this is a great question. I've never, no one's ever asked me this before. I think, um, I once heard Liz, Liz Gilbert, um, say, like I went to see her at a book reading or something and I don't know the context of the question, but she said, writing is the place where she's the least full of shit in her life. And I identified with that. And it's with, with a caveat for me is when I am full of shit, when I'm writing, I can't, I can smell it and Hmm. I cannot tolerate it. It, um, it feel it, there's nothing more clean to me than feeling that it's like a, a resonance or something when you know you're telling, when you're telling the truth about it. Um, and, and I love this like idea of truth telling because I feel like in our culture and especially, I don't know, maybe in the last like five or six years with a lot of people that have become 
really popular. It's like um, telling the truth has become a thing yes. that we all want to do. And it's like, you tell, you know, it, it's a thing. Um, and so it, it can easily become, uh, well, I'm just going to provide the most shock value, right? Like I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, my truth is going to be nastier and more shocking and more maybe sometimes even un- non-discerning and inappropriate um, than yours. And that means I'm a true teller because I don't give a fuck. And to me, that's not what true telling is at all. I mean, it can be that, I guess. But to me, the truth is a lot more, doesn't vibrate quite so high. It's um, it's a lot more subtle. It's like um, Cheryl Strayed said, like acceptance is is a small, quiet room. And to me, so is the truth. It's like, it's not the big bang that you hear when you like see a car crash. It's more this like soft click um, when something falls into place. And it can be really, the subject can be quote unquote big or it can be small, um, but you know it when you feel it, right? And I know when I feel it, when I'm writing, when I'm trying, cause I've done that before. I've tried to be shocking or to be like exhibitionist or not tried, but I realized I am, you know, and it is, and it feels shitty. It feels insincere. It feels, it stinks. Like it actually just feels no. And, um, and I think the job of a writer in my mind is to figure out what the, the, the actual truth is, um, underneath that big loud crash that's, that a lot of people are going for. Um, you know, like so many of the headlines that we see and so many, even books, it's like, I don't know, it's more for shock value than it is for actually for, for truth. Yeah, in my mind. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you, and especially, you know, what you said about the last couple of years. And is this, it's almost anytime an idea gains notoriety or prominence, right? Like there's, I think a lot, there's like a good side of the coin. And then there's always like the harder side of the coin. Like when we talk about Brene Brown's work and vulnerability, right? And all the good things that come along with that. But then on the other side, I feel like it's sort of created this culture, which I mean, I've definitely been part of, you know, from time to time, that it's like who's trying to win like the most vulnerable crown, right? Like totally. And yes. almost like policing each other's like you're not being vulnerable enough or like just like the word the words vulnerability, authenticity, right? Like it's come to the point where they don't really mean anything anymore like in this context totally. and especially totally. if you spent a lot of time on social media or doing public work, right? Like as obviously both of us have, you are inherently aware of for the most part how things are going to land, right? And so yeah. like there is like for me I find that it's the type of truth where like sometimes I'll write something and it's not that it's not true. It's just that it's like the performative version of saying it, right? That it's like, for me, my check, which I'm hopefully getting more successful at, but is, okay, well, how would I actually say this if I wasn't looking for validation of a certain type, right? Like that there's, I'm hesitant. I think I used to sh- share things too soon, which is hard because I believe in kind of like real life in real time. Like you don't have to wait until there's like this pretty bow you can tie around something in order to talk about what's going on. But if you're so attached to 
Like I need people to, you know, pity me or I need people to tell me that I'm worthy or I need people to be impressed mm-hmm. by me. Like, eh, that's it's not the intent. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that, it's the intent with which you're sharing it. And you can really tell or you can tell when you read something for sure. Uh, and you can tell when you're writing something as well. Um, I think all the successful, um, in my mind, writers are the ones who, who you can tell, like you can feel that frequency of what they're saying. You can feel the truth. Like you, the truth resonates in your body. Don't you think? Yes. Even if you're flipping through Instagram, there's a lot of like, if I feel like someone's trying to package up a lesson to me, nope, you know, I don't want it. Um, like, don't, don't tell me what you want me to hear. Just tell me what, what's happening with you. And I'll decide, you know, what I, what I get from that. Yeah. So Um, is it really a physical thing for you that you can feel mm -hmm. when you're sort of on course and not on course with that? Totally. Especially when I'm writing, it's, it just feels, yeah, it's, it's that soft click. When I, I went to a writing retreat once with Danny Shapiro and she had us do this meditation exercise. So the soft click is completely hers, but she had us do this meditation exercise where we, we do something um, where we, we draw like uh, circles on a piece of paper. I'm summarizing it, but she said, wait, wait until you have like a soft click inside. And I knew exactly what she meant. Um, Cause you can feel it. I can feel it when I'm writing, when I, when I have like had the soft click and I'm in that space versus when I'm trying to do something and when I'm trying Mm -hmm. to, and it's, it's hard to discern sometimes. I mean, I, you know, as a, I had to learn what the truth actually was and I am still learning, you know, what, what the truth is. My relationship to the truth was very shaky. Um, for a long time. And so I think the process of writing actually gets you there um, for me. So it's like an excavation process. It's like, okay, this, I have to go this layer and this layer and this layer. And it's like, no, what do I actually mean? What it is that I, what it is it that I'm actually writing about? Um, and a lot of times, like you asked about the process for me, a lot of times the things that I decide to write about or an entire essay or in, you know, some t- in some cases, like, chapter titles or book titles will come from a single phrase, sometimes a single word that I want to build on. Um, like right now I'm writing, um, or I, I am creating a workshop called the bigger yes. And that comes from a Stephen Covey quote, but I'll, I'll get something stuck in my head and it's like, okay, that that's the piece that I want to build it around. Uh, I don't know what the content is yet, but it starts from that. And, and I, and I build around that. And if I find that I'm, that's not the thing that I'm actually end up writing about, I've gone off, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so funny. I'm exactly the same way, which means, I mean, maybe a lot of people are this way, that there's a phrase or a quote or a word, like something, again, it's mm-hmm. like the truth, right? That you're like, there's something very true about this. And for me, uh, for better or worse, I'm like what I think of as a light switch person. Like I'm either totally obsessed or I give no shits. Like there's not really an in between for me and I can't really fake it, which I mean, I guess makes me not good at small talk or whatever, but, um, it's, uh, I have to be like truly curious 
about yeah. whatever the subject is. And like that's tripped me up. I it's funny, off the heels of finishing like what felt like a successful, you know, writing project. I well, by the time this um episode airs, it'll be up. I'm starting a hiking blog. I went on a kind of Ooh. long distance backpacking trip last year that changed a lot for me. And I'm going on another one yeah. this year and wanted to write about it. And so on the heels of that, I was like, why is this the only experience of like this kind of feel it in your body truth and like enjoyable storytelling that I've had? And I realized like so many of the things that I've tried and stopped, tried and stopped to write about, it was something that I thought I should be writing about or something that I thought people expected me to write about or something that I'm like, yeah. oh, people think that I, wait, wait, wait. but like, it's not something that I'm so curious about that I'm like, I have to do this, which for me, yeah. like it's, I can't, I can't fake it. No, I can't either I, 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 at all. Um, if I try, it's very obvious. Yeah. And it's like these, and it's also, you know, I think sometimes too, we think we should, or we want to be seen in a certain way. Um, or we don't think we have permission to tell the, the, you know, to talk about the thing that we actually want to talk about. So all those are hurdles that you have to get over to get to the truth, you know? Yeah, I I really love what you said before about, you know, sort of being turned off by people who are trying to package up a lesson for you. And like, if I think about the truth telling that resonates with me the most, it's always like, here's what's true. And then you have to sort of trust that the reader is going to do what they do with it, right? Like, you don't have to like spoon feed. Here's the theme, you know? Right. And it's, it's hard, man. Yeah. It's, it's something oh God, I'm, so I'm learning to, to, I really had to learn to do with the book. It's like, t- just tell people what happened. You know, they don't, all the best books for me have not told me what to think about what happened. They just told me what happened, you know? Absolutely. And it's really hard not to do that because essays or blog posts or Instagram posts can definitely, you know, get into that space. Um, I mean, I do it. I do too. I mean, and sometimes it works, right? Sometimes it works, but I'm not writing a self-help book, you know? Um, and I don't want to write a self-help book. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I thought a lot about that. Um, I, I have thought a lot about that too. The thing that you're thinking about, you know, the, the actual truth versus this, this sort of packaged, uh, or, or wanting to tell, to be a truth teller. Right. Um, wanting that as an identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to dig into something that you shared on Instagram. Um, the quote that you said is your writing mantra, the quote that's that goes, it's not enough that we do our best. Sometimes we must do what is required. Will you tell me about Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Oh, I have it right here on my fridge and I can see it. Um, well, it started out as it's started as kind of my sobriety mantra when I could not get sober. Um, and it was at the point, you know, I, I tried and for a year, over a year before it actually, I was able to, to get some longer term sobriety. And at that point I knew like I wasn't doing what was actually required. I was giving myself a lot of excuses. And, um, so it, it kind of became my, my mantra for, for getting sober And then it became, yeah, it was like the writing has been the same for me. It's like at some point I'm either doing it or I'm not, right? Um, I'm either sitting down to write on a regular basis or I'm not. 
and I ha- and I will always be able to come up with excuses. And I've learned that the things that are the biggest for us, you meaning they hold the most value or they're sometimes the scariest are the resistance will come up huge. Um, and it'll feel very real. Like this is funny. I, right now I'm, I, I'm looking at my index finger and I have like 20 stitches in it from Monday. I stuck, I, I cut it with a hand blender, which is horrific by the way. And I came back from this weekend. I went to She Recovers. By the time this airs, it'll be long gone. But this uh, weekend in New York, and I had some really big revelations around my book and the structure of it and some conversations and talked to my editor and stuff. And I was like so ready to sit down on Monday and like go for, for it, to dig back in. And I decided I should make lunch first, you know, before I started to do that. And I made, I started to make lunch and it was a more involved lunch than I ever do, by the way, which is funny and involved a hand blender. And I ended up cutting myself and having to go to the ER and whole day bloom. And also now I have, I can't type very well. Um, so writing is, is more difficult. And I'm just laughing. It's like, yeah, resistance <laughs> will come up hard. Like writing has been a challenge this week. Um, so it's, it's that for me. It's like, am I doing my best or am I doing what's required? And a lot of times if I look honestly with, with things like this, I'm not doing what is required. I'm saying I'm doing my best. Um, but it's, mm, it's not true. Oof, yeah. One of the things that I f- have found, um, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but I don't think that it is that I have in common with other people who have gotten sober, right? Who have quit drinking. Like Mm -hmm. this has come up in, or, you know, quit whatever their addiction was, um, in conversation that we are, I think everyone is, but we are particularly good at lying to ourselves, which brings like a whole other lens to what we were just talking about, about truth. But this idea, like it's very easy for me to lie to myself about, you know, just this idea of, oh, well, like I did my best when that's not actually true. And I find it uh, an interesting and like continually tough thing to grapple with. I think about it a lot. Um, my sort of life mantra is like wanting to live with what I call grit and grace. And this mm-hmm. idea that grit is right, that sometimes we must do what is required. And grace is, well, sometimes that's not enough. And like, you can't control all the things. And, you know, so it's right. like that both are true, right? Because like, I both can true. right? Like this quote, you know, this idea, like, it's not enough that we do our best you know, sometimes you have to do what's required, but sometimes we can't, but like, they're both true. <laughs> it's, like, it's like an interesting, I don't it know. Is, it is because only, you know, the truth. That's yeah. the thing. It's, you know, we also live in a culture where it's like, just do more, just keep, just go, just keep going, just, just push at it and force it. And that's not what, obviously not what it, what I'm talking about either. You know, I, it's, it is, it's both. And only, you know, you only know the truth. I only know, like there was a time where I was truly struggling with getting sober and I, and I could not have gotten sober, you know, before I did, I don't think. But then uh, once I was out of like the acute addiction and I had enough knowledge and I had enough support if I wanted it. And I, I was crossing into a place where it became a choice, you know, and, and that's a tricky, tricky territory when it comes to addiction it, to, to say that 
Um, but I, I knew in the back of my mind at a certain point I was choosing it. I was, um, and that's the same stuff with, with writing. It's like, there will always be things that come up, you know, and there are sometimes real days where it's just not going to happen, but it's like the, the, um, the bigger yes quote that I just said, I just mentioned, or the bigger yes theme. Do you know that Stephen Covey quote? No, I mean, I know his work, but not that specifically. Yeah. So he, um, I'm just going to read it to you real quick. Um, and I don't want to butcher it. To me, this is what it, it, it sort of the, the, the next part of what we just were talking about is said, you have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. Mm. So it's hard and it's only like only you can, you know, if I look to the outside, people would be like, of of course it's hard. Like you're a single mom and you're trying to run a business and you like you're training for a marathon and you're this and this and this. And it's like, you know, of course no one would, everyone would understand why I can't possibly write a book right now. Yeah. But. Right. But you're the one that has to live with yourself in that decision. And yeah, no, I agree. I think what you said before about like only you can know what's true for you. Right. And Mm -hmm. like willing to be like, Nope, I'm not doing what's required. And like, I have it in me and I'm not doing it. I mean, that's a painful place to be. You mentioned sort of the parallel of that with drinking and sort of this idea of contradictions is interesting to me. This like, okay, so let's say like the paradox of personal choice, right. In the world of addiction, that this idea that, well, at some point we decide to drink the alcohol, right. Or use the drugs or whatever, but that doesn't, like I, I know, I don't think people choose to become addicted, and no. like, but then to your point, you had gotten to the place of okay, I'm past, you know, the hardest of this, and this is now just a, like a personal responsibility issue. Like, how do you think about those seemingly contradictory things? Like that we have free will and personal responsibility, but that ultimately we can't control everything. <laughs> oh God, I love this question. I mean, because both are true. It's, it is, I mean, my thing when it comes specifically to addiction, I, I think, yes, we absolutely all do choose, uh, to do the drug or to drink or to eat the food or whatever. Um, but there's, when you progress into addiction there, you lose your choice at some point. You know, I did, I absolutely did. And it's a, and then it is, um, this sort of, it's this, you you can physically be addicted to the point where you, you kind of don't even have that, like your brain has been arrested. You don't have that choice. But what I'm talking about is that space where you start to, like I had put together periods of sobriety. I had all the information. I wrote a, a long piece about it called the tipping point. And because the question I get maybe more than anything else from people is like, what made it finally stick? Why, why did it stick when it did? You know, cause we all want that. Like, and I wanted it too. Like what's the, the magic sticky glue. <laughs> Give me that little piece of information. And the truth was it was thousands of things that I could say were the reasons that I ultimately was able to do it. Uh, and I, and I don't have one. Um, but if I did, 
it would be that it would be, I, I did have to decide at one point, like, I'm just not going to fucking do this anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it was an Augustin Burroughs essay in, in his essay, this is how, where he, he said, um, like in a hundred percent of the documented cases of alcoholism worldwide, the people who recovered all shared one thing in common, no matter how they didn't did it. They ju- they didn't do it. They just didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And for me, my temperament, my personality, I needed the hard love. Me too. Thing. Mm-hmm. I did. Um, cause I, I, I needed it. And so when I read, you know, when I, once I saw that, I was like, God damn it. <laughs> that's where it is. But so I think it is, it's that paradox because both things are true. It's like, and, and there is nowhere where it's more true. You know, the paradoxes are more true than an addiction recovery. I mean, you can't do it alone. I truly believe that, but only you can do it. You know, both of those things are absolutely uh, are true at the same time. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear more about, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, sort of trying and failing to stay sober. And I think at the beginning, and I think something that I think about a lot and have maybe done a poor job of, maybe not, I don't know, everyone's story's different. For me, it was a, I mean, at least so far, right? Like sobriety can change at any moment, but that I stopped drinking and that was it. Not to say it was easy, right? But it was, yeah. it wasn't a drinking, not drinking, drinking, not drinking. And I think yeah. that sometimes like we get really, so I'm hesitant sometimes to, to talk about my story because it makes it seem like, oh, well, for someone who that's not their experience, what's wrong with me that I can't just stop like she did, right? Like this myth of changing totally. once and being done, like I think is really sexy, especially with the emphasis that we place on just make a different choice, right? Like all of that. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know, I, I would just, I appreciate your your honesty about that. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your sort of experience those first weeks and months, like who were you at that point in your life sort of trying and not succeeding to stay sober? Well, when I first, when I first started, like when I first kind of knew I had to quit, is that what you mean? Like those first, you know, sort of what was going on with me in that year maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was, I was not one of those people that, I mean, I was pretty far down the, the, barrel of addiction. I was someone who on the outside was doing very well. I had, you know, I was like, um, on management team position and, um, an advertising agency. I had driving a good car had, I mean, I was separated from my husband. That was a disaster, but had a beautiful daughter had, you know, like things were okay. It looked good. Um, but I was drinking every night and I was, hiding it. Uh, and I had been for a long time. Uh, and it was pretty dark and I blacked out most times when I drank and it was, I was very scared. Uh, and I also had a very compartmentalized life. You know, there were lots of different versions of the truth with lots of different people and nobody that really knew who, uh, you know, the whole story of what was going on with me. And and I didn't think that that was a possibility at all. So I, I, I was my, I say that because I, I was trying to do everything not to know, know, to not know that I had to quit drinking. I like really tried to do everything to not know that. Um, but I was, I was ran into a brick wall basically not, not literally, but I, 
had a very public, very horrific um, sort of first bottom that involves uh, my family. And, and so it was like, I was forced to look at it. And there started to be people in my life who were very invested in me not drinking anymore. Um, and then, but it was, you know, it was very, it was like too blunt for me to just stop. Like it, it was never going to happen that way for me. Um, I, as soon as I, and I had experienced this many times where I had this horrific thing happen. And then within a day or two, once the emergency is over, I am very unduly alarmed (laughs) about what just happened. Uh, And that's like the denial stuff. But I I went to like try to figure out how to be a sober person. And A, I had no interest in it. None. And I thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen. Um, I had no interest in it. And I also just didn't know how. Like I didn't know how to do anything without drinking. I didn't know how to do laundry. I didn't know how to sit at home. I, you know, I just, my, my life did not make sense without, without drinking. I didn't know how to be at work, like after work, I, none of it. So it was almost like, um, I always think of it as like, if someone cut off my arm and they were just like, you don't, you know, you maybe get it bandaged, bandaged up in some like really, you know, shitty way, but they're like, just go, just go back to your life. Like just do your life. And I had no skills to do that. I didn't know. And it it affected everything. Right. So I started to like go to meetings and very regretfully, like started to sort of, you know, I'd read all the addiction memoirs, but I reread them and I would just go in and out. You know, I, for a long time, like you, you said you never stood in that drinking, not drinking. I stood there in that sort of purgatory for a year where I really, wanted to, I didn't really want to be sober, but I wanted to be a sober person without quitting drinking. Oh yeah. Listen, I mean, (laughs) the the thing that I always say about this, like the truest thing about the time in my life when I quit drinking is that I wanted to change my life without actually changing my life. Yes, exactly. I wanted my life to stop exploding. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to stop drinking. Yeah. So yeah, I'm with you. Um, so it was like that, you know, and, and the, the thing is, is it just got darker that, you know, because it wasn't just a thing that maybe I knew internally. Now it was a thing that was, that other people knew too. Um, meaning me, like this was a problem. Mm-hmm. I had to compartmentalize even more, lie even more, you know, and so it just got uglier and darker. Like, you know, if there was a, an hour window where I get some like relief when I was drinking before it started to narrow down to like 30 minutes, 20 minutes. And then there was no time that I was okay, that the anxiety wasn't just massive. And eventually, I mean, you know, a lot of things, I put together short periods of sobriety. And so I started to feel what that was like. Uh, and certain areas of my life started to, to really improve on the outside fast, like work and things like that. Um, but I, I 
couldn't stay stopped. I couldn't stay stopped. And that's where the, you know, the Augustine Burroughs thing came in. It was like, yeah, there, there is a thing that, that happens where, um, how do I say this? Like, I, I remember very clearly not feeling like I had any choice. And I believe that was true because of, I was that far in. Um, and I, I, I had finally learned like all the things that I could do if I chose to, to set myself up so that I had a really good shot at staying sober. Yeah. And I started to do those things. It was less about choosing not to drink. I mean, that was in there too, but I, I started to actually, you know, not happily do these things that, so that I could stay sober. Um, and, and, and pray and hope that it would get better and easier. And it did, but it took me a really long time, you know, and for everybody it's different. Like I would have taken a story like that, like the one I just told and used it as reason to keep drinking. Like I did that in meetings and in, and in other, you know, I looked for those stories. It was like, okay, that person kept drinking for a year. I've only, you know, I've, I've only been, you know, repeating this for six months. I'm going to keep going. I mean, that's how crazy it was, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think part of sort of recovery for me has been uh, like grappling with the things that were at the root of change being difficult in this regard. And the two things that come up for me are essentially the identity of myself as this like really fun party girl that I had to let go. Like I didn't realize how attached I was to that identity until I had to let that identity go. Right. That was a really hard piece for me. And then the other thing that was really hard, um, which I think is like a larger cultural thing, this sort of like binary dichotomy of like, what it means to be a drinker or not drinker. Like the only people who don't drink are people who have problems. Right. And like, of course we're not going to say that addiction isn't a problem or isn't whatever, but that, that it's, it's seen as like the normal choice to like do this drug. Right. And that if you're making, like I felt a lot of shame around the fact that I was making a different choice. Right. And that I always had to apologize for it or like you have to, I don't know. It's like this weird, I obviously, I know that you know what I'm talking about, but that it's not respected as like just a choice. Like something has to be wrong with you if you're not like quote normal, like everyone else who can just drink. And I think that there's something super damaging in that. Oh, it's beyond damaging. I mean, I just wrote a post um, called, am I an alcoholic based on this woman who wrote me and I get a lot of letters like this, like, um, how do I know if I'm a real alcoholic? This is what my drinking looks like. This is what I feel like when I stop. Do I really have to quit? Am I really an alcoholic? And it's like, I, I just pulled that question apart because it's like, that's a wrong damn question. Because what I would hear, what I heard from this woman is I stopped drinking for a month. It wasn't that hard. I felt this like renewed sense of joy and peace in my life. And I'm wondering if I have to quit because like, am I an alcoholic? Because it was so easy for me to stop. And holy fuck, like all that, this little letter contained so many truths about what we think about drinking, right? Like she told me her life was better, that she felt better. She felt this unprecedented joy. 
And yet she's wondering if she has to quit because, because of what you just said, what we think are there's, it's this binary, like there are people who drink. Oh no, there's alcoholics and then everyone else. Yeah. And if you're not in that problem area of being an alcoholic, then you're everyone else. And why the fuck would you quit ever? Like, what's the point? You know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's not just almost insane. It's totally insane. And I never questioned that until I went to get sober. And I thought, this is so messed up. Mm -hmm. This is so messed up. And the only place I can go to talk about this is in rooms of, of, of AA, which I, I love that program. But the only place I can go is somewhere where it is, as in the title, anonymous, because this is a thing we're not supposed to talk about. Yeah. What? What? It's insane. It's totally insane. And it keeps people drinking for, 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 for a long time. Because I mean, the reality is, like, a lot of people, they wouldn't qualify for the alcoholic label. If they took the test, they wouldn't qualify. But uh, their drinking is problematic because it because drinking is addictive. It's like an addictive substance. So yeah, it's wild. It's so wild. And, you know, I think my work, I didn't ever plan this to be my work, but my work has been really to like, look at that really closely. Um, and it, same as you, my identity was very wrapped up in being the cool girl, like meaning not popular, although I like that too, but like, I'm cool with whatever. I can take it. I can handle it. I can do all these things. I can be like wild. Um, and it, and I'm cool. It's cool. I can, I can do it. And drinking allowed me to be that person. There was like a very specific time in high school when I realized the connection, like I could drink and I could be that person. And I, I followed that. And then when you take that away, I didn't know who the, who I was. I had no idea. Um, so yeah, it's, it is, um, it's big. It's bigger than we even think mm -hmm. to me. It's like, um, Holly says this, has said this before, but it's like the cigarettes, like it's almost like the way we looked at cigarettes in the seventies or sit. No, maybe it was like sixties. Like, people are actually promoting it, even doctors. And now you don't even think about like whether smoking is, is cool or good or, you know, it's like pretty widely known that it's just kind of a stupid thing. If you're going to do it, if you're choosing to do it and it doesn't look good. <laughs> and I feel like, I hope at some point in our lives, we see drinking that way where it's like, it's so clearly that was so crazy. <laughs> what were we doing? Yeah, it was. I mean, so you mentioned Holly, obviously, who was on the show um, mm -hmm. a bunch of seasons ago. And I mean, it was sort of my introduction to her and her work. And then through that, you and your work, right? And the work you mm -hmm. two do together really 
was a big pivot point for me in my recovery in this exact topic. Like I didn't realize how much sort of culturally internalized shame I had about not yeah. drinking that like she was the first person to help me see like, what if this is just like an empowered choice that I made? Like it doesn't have to be because I struggle with that. Am I an alcoholic? Am I not? Is it, it, it like, because it was the same thing. Well, I just stopped drinking. I mean, it wasn't that easy, but it, right. Like all this stuff was right. true. And you know, it was through, I mean, the, the work that you guys do that it even made me start to, I'm very sensitive now to, sort of, especially like marketing messaging or just messaging, particularly around how alcohol is sort of, um, marketed at women and these ideas of like, it's wine o'clock or like, it's whatever this Friday, you deserve this. Yeah. Mommy's helper. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like the wine glasses that have, you know, mama's whatever on it. And it's just, I find it like I have like a physical, physically negative reaction to that now that I was so normalized to me. So the work you're doing in the world matters because it works. So thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) No. And, you know, I have to say like I, Holly um, sort of felt that way from the beginning in her sobriety. And, you know, thank God she did because she created kind of a thing. I, I didn't feel that way. I, my experience of getting sober was very different. It was, I, I really didn't want it. I thought it was the worst thing that could possibly happen. I, I, I grieved drinking for a really long time. And yet I also knew that there was something incredibly fucked up about the way that we saw it. You know, I knew that, like, I remember it's, it's so clear to me. I, I was riding up from this train station on my way to work, my big job, and I think I had just drank again, like maybe the night before. And I was writing, like walking up from the underground, you know, to, to my office building, um, in downtown Boston. And I thought, where is everybody? And why aren't we talking about this? What this is, everything is broken. Um, it, and for me, I've never been that kind of person, you know, like I, I, um, I don't know. I wasn't, I've never been the kind of person that has like this sort of inherent sense of injustice in the world. Me too. <laughs> Which I mean, I've thought about that a lot recently, like all the privileges that I have that have let that be true, right? That you're just like yeah. raised to trust the system, which in whatever the yeah. system looks like, that's like definitely the like blinders that go on, you know, from different sorts of privileges. Totally. And I had a dad who, who, you know, I'm, this is why I'm connecting these dots in the book. It's like, I was, I just didn't believe that I had anything, you know, it was like, like my, the way my kind of force, my kind of power isn't valuable. You know, like, it's like that, um, Nayara Wahid quote about not being a a fire that burns over the mountain, but uh, a soft river that runs through it being the power. And I'm definitely the soft river. Like that's my power. It's not like a, a, a fire. And so I just, I don't know. I wasn't, you know, I don't look like it. I would never be like, I'm an activist. and da, da, da. You know, I, I never had this like, yeah, inherent sense of injustice. But with this, this changed it for me. I was like, this is too, it's too big. It, the pain was so big in me that it like, it cracked that open. Um, so it was, you know, I think, I think there are a lot of women, especially who quiet that parts that part of themselves around anything. And I didn't think, you know, it was like, I didn't, who am I to talk about this? Who am I to do this? But 
at the same time, I knew like, this is mine, actually, I know this is mine. And I and I'm going to talk about it. And that's where, you know, you asked about like, telling the truth. This is the first time this is when I started to tell the truth. And I felt how powerful that was, like, it was actually more than anything else, it saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, you know, truth, truth telling and it's in its clearest form and its cleanest form with the intent to with the, with the right intent can be life-changing, life-saving for sure. Yeah, I agree. It's like, I mean, that's the thing. I feel like real truth is it, it, this was said to me, oh man, I'm going to like butcher how beautifully this, this woman said it, this woman that I worked with, you know, like a coach for a while, this idea that like, like the truth that you are meant to share like with the world, right? Like whatever your work is like that comes through you, like it's, it comes for you first. Yeah. And yeah. so like the act of telling the truth, if you're actually telling the truth, right? Not the performative truth that we were talking about, uh-huh. but like that, the purpose of that is to heal you. That's the purpose, right? And then if, yes. and then like once, because that the truth does that, then once it goes out into the world, like that's when sort of the like umbilical cord of needing validation, right? Like is cut because like it has done its work in being healing for you. And now it can just exist out there as something that's true for other people to do whatever the hell with. That's right. Exactly. Easier said than done, but yeah, no, but it's, but that's it. That, that really is it. And you made me think of like the, the gospel of St. Thomas quote, which is when I, I read it, uh, in, in Stephen Cope's book, like the great work of your life when, uh, and I knew that this thing I was doing, this was like before I was sober, that this thing I was doing was that this quote is what he was talking about where he says, I hope I get it right. But it's something like, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Yeah. Like that's the responsibility piece or the, even if it's only responsibility to self, like you have to bring forth what is within you. Um, and that's why I ended up quitting my job and doing, you know, it was, and it wasn't for other people. Like, this is not, it's not an altruistic thing. Like it was for me, you know? Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about the day that you decided to quit your job. Oh gosh, I decided to quit. I mean, I, I had intended to quit a thousand times before the day I quit, but the day it was a, I, for a long time, I didn't know, like I knew it was a thing that was, I I prayed and I hoped it was a thing that was going to happen and I could like see it and taste it and feel it. But I didn't know how it would happen because I couldn't see that like any big sort of thing that's bigger than our mind can sort of wrap, we can wrap our mind around, like I couldn't, you know, project my plan, project plan my way into it. Um, I, cause I had, I have a daughter and single mom, you know, I had like no savings. It wasn't like I had money to fall back on and things like that. So I just couldn't understand how it would possibly happen. And, but yet I kept doing the things that like the writing and the podcast and the started to teach workshops and stuff like that while having this whole other job. And I just kept doing it. And, and for a, a long time, it was really crazy. Um, meaning I was, I was like stretched 
but I was also fuller than I had ever been, you know, like fulfilled, more fulfilled than I had ever been, but I, I still couldn't see my way out of it. And then, um, eventually, you know, I, there was a very specific like weekend where a few things sort of came together, came to my attention and I was given the opportunity to, it, it just became clear, like, Oh, the time is now like it could happen. Um, and I had a small window and I just decided to do it. And it was a year ago this, this month that I quit. Um, and it feels like 20 years ago and it feels like a month ago, (laughs) but I, I, I mean, it was already done, you know, by the time I actually quit, it was, I was, it was already done. Like it was already written. Um, so the act of actually doing it, I mean, I'll never forget it though. It was like one of the, the best moments of my life, just walking in to, you know, saying to my boss, like, I'm out, (laughs) I am out, I am out. I will give you two months and I am done. Uh, scary, very scary, but, but I knew it, you know, I knew that it was, it was a, it was the leap that, that was going to happen. You mentioned the weekend where the things fell into place that made it feel like, okay, this is the window of time in which to do this. What were those things? So, yeah, so I, a couple things, I was given some work that would give me enough money to have a, a window of time, um, where I could sustain for a couple of months. Right. And that, that work kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, it didn't come out of nowhere in the sense, like I was, it, it made sense, but it was, it wasn't something I sought out specifically. Um, it was a result of doing, of just what I had been doing. And then I, I, for myself, and I think this is important because someone, someone sent me a a tweet the other day that said, it was like, Hey, I'm, um, a 36 year old white male who has, who realized that who's, who's financially supported by my parents. And I'm here to tell you to quit your job and follow your passion. (laughs) I'm a 36 year old white man. Yeah, that's what it said. Um, and it made me laugh so hard because I, I realize like how frustrating it can be to hear, like, just quit your job, just do it and follow your passion. Like, I hate that advice. That's, that is what I did, but it's not what I did. Um, I decided there were a couple people in my life that I needed to be for me to have their support in order for me to feel, um, safe in doing it. And one was my ex-husband um, because he can make my life very painful <laughs> if he wants. And, you know, we share a daughter and I, I needed to have his support. Um, and it was a real risk in me asking him because we have, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of history and it wasn't me asking him if I could do it. It was me asking him, what would you be supportive if I did? What do you think? And he was to my shock not just supportive. He was like, go. So there was that. And I needed to have, you know, there was health insurance. I needed to have that worked out. But other than that, you know, I also thought I need to ask my dad. I need to ask my mom. I need to get the buy-in of five other people. And I, I realized that I didn't need that. And not only did I not need it, I decided not to ask them. 
or tell them until I had done it. Um, which was huge for me, huge for me. Uh, especially the dad thing, you know, I'm like a 30 at that point I was a 37 year old girl who still and always wanted her dad to be, be supportive and proud. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he, I, he, he found out later. He's like, wait, what are you doing? Why aren't you at work? You know? Um, so it was, you know, I came up, it was like, I don't need permission. I did not have to ask her permission. That was a huge, a huge thing. So it was like, those, those were the things that happened. I needed to have a small window of time and I needed to know that I had enough work to sustain me. So it was financial and I needed to have, really, it was just my ex-husband. I think about it. No one else. There were plenty of people telling me not to do it. There were tons of people telling me to do it. None of them mattered. And the fear, I want to say this too, like my fear in that month, I was like a, the, the two months when I was, before I gave notice, my fear with like my lizard brain fear was skyrocketed. I had nightmares every night that banks shut down, like banks stopped working and I couldn't get money that phones stopped working. Like my anxiety, it wasn't just like, woohoo, here we go. I had real fear. And I, I like prayed at that fear, like hard. Um, and it's still scary, but I don't know. It's less scary than not doing it. I guess. Yeah. Or like less (laughs) painful than not doing it, I guess. Less painful than not doing it. So yeah, I mean, people, that's a question people ask me a lot. Like it's like this and I don't, I, I, um, it's different for everybody, but I remember like riding in the, in an Uber one time for work. I was at, I, I was at an advertising agency, like I said, and I had this, I was going to New York, traveling all over, doing these really long, grueling, painful client meetings. I was in account services. So I was like, you know, just get beat up in that job. And I would did a day trip to an office of a very big company in New Jersey. I was doing that like a couple times a month. And I remember just riding in the Uber ride. And this is at this point, you know, every day that I showed up at this job, I just felt like this doesn't even make sense anymore. After what I'm doing here, I can't just not make sense. And I was so tired. I was so beat up. I knew I had to like, I had to, it was a day trip, you know, I I had woken up at like four in the morning. I had my daughter that week. It was just like juggling a thousand things. Plus I was still pretty newly sober. I remember riding in the back of this Uber and this woman named Marianne, who was the Uber driver, we started talking as you do in the Uber and she like owned, um, two, um, like play houses. I don't know what you call those, like where they have plays. Um, she owned two of those in New York. She was an actress. She was a singer and she was telling me about her life and how she had like quit her. She had quit her job like 15 years ago to do this and she loves it. And she still doesn't sometimes know where money's coming from, but, and she was just like, Oh honey, I can tell there's something that you want to do. I can tell what is it. And, and I told her a little bit and she was like, Oh, don't wait for an exit strategy. Just don't, it will never come. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, Marianne. And, you know, I didn't quit for like another six months or something, but I never forgot that. And you get, you get things like that that come, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those, as all I think the like truest things in life with the contradictions, right? Because that idea of, you know, don't wait for an exit strategy, there's never going to be a perfect moment that even, you know, what you so beautifully shared about, you know, the anxiety and the nightmares, like there's definitely, I would assume people who would be like, well, I'm having these bad dreams, this means this isn't the right choice for me, right? Which for some people might be the case, but it can also be where the opposite is true, like all of that stuff, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, right? Like all of that can be true. But I love so much about what you shared is, that it was a really it's a really clear example of like first identifying the story that you were telling yourself of like oh, I could never quit my job or I could never see a way that that would work right and it's really easy to have that sort of like big vague truthy sounding story yeah. and then to hold on to that but to actually do the work of asking yourself okay what do I really need specifically in order to make this change and to identify like, huh, it's one potentially hard conversation, which turned out to surprise you with one person, right? It's health insurance. And it's like a certain whatever you decide the amount of money is right in the work to cover that. That And those things, I think this is true in like virtually every change. Like even for me, like what has to be true in order for me to quit drinking? What has to be true for this? Like if we're willing to get specific. And I think often the reason that I when I'm hesitant to be specific with myself or when I'm resisting it, it's because change is scary, but change is always scary. Right. So, but like, there's something very empowering to be like, Oh, I thought this thing I could never do. All I need is to tick these three boxes. Doesn't mean they're easy, but it is that simple. It is. It's that simple. It's not that easy, but it's that simple. Yeah, absolutely. It was three things, you know, but it took me two years. I was like, I was doing, we had, been doing home podcasts for a year. I had been writing on my blog. I had been waking up at ungodly hours because I wanted to there. I didn't know that there would be an exit. I was doing it because it was like saving my life and I loved it and it filled me up so much. Um, and yet it was going so much slower than I wanted, you know, it was like, I mean, I think a couple weeks before I, I actually had that weekend where it came kind of came together I said to Holly, you know, like, this is never going to happen. I, I, I'm going to have to meet a guy. I'm going to have to marry someone with a lot of money. And that's not something I would ever fucking say or think or really even want, but that's how far off it meant. You know, it it felt to me, it was like, this is just, I don't even see a way out. Like, there's no way this is going to happen. This is going to have to be like this. And she was like, um, we're going to pretend you never said that. That's the stupidest thing you've ever said. Um, so yeah, it is. It's like you do, once I started to ask myself the specific things, though, it's like, what do you actually need? And those things are real, right? Like you don't go like, just, you don't just, just leap, right? Like there is some level that each of us needs to feel comfortable enough, And that comfort was not, I mean, it was still, I told you the anxiety, but it was comfortable enough. It was like the tipping, I reached a tipping point. (laughs) I was like, I can do it. If those things are checked, I can do it. Yeah. I also think that there's something that I constantly need to remind myself that the example of, you know, you, you talked to your ex-husband and you had envisioned, it sounds like the conversation going very differently or potentially going differently. Mm -hmm. There's so many times where I've been hesitant to have, you know, what I perceive will be difficult conversations with people because essentially like I 
am being so sort of like self-involved that I just assume that I know what they're going to say, right? Like that the actual communication, you have to get like, you're only half of that situation. You have to give the other person like their chance to be in that conversation with you. And I can't tell you how many times I just either haven't brought the thing up or haven't, you know, because I'm just like, well, I know what they're going to say. Okay, but no, you don't. (laughs) So it's like, maybe it'll be worse than you think, but maybe it'll be different or better or whatever. I know that's very true. I expected it to go one way because I have my own shit, you know, around our relationship and around him. And, um, and he surprised me in that moment, but you know, six months before that, I don't know if he would have said the same thing. And honestly, I don't know what I would have done had he not been supportive. Maybe I would have done it six months later or who knows, but at that moment it came together, you know, at that moment it, it was a yes from internally. And it was a yes from the people that I needed it to be externally too. Yeah. The one person. So something that I would love to hear about, um, is the experience of co-parenting after divorce. Like what has, what are some things that have made that work for you guys? Or how do you, how do you think about that? Oh, I love this question. I've never talked about this publicly and it's so, it's so important to me. Like it's a, my relationship with my ex-husband is probably the, the biggest blessing. One of the biggest blessings of my life, for sure. And I would not have imagined it would be so because it was not pretty when we when we separated. Um, so co-parenting. So I, I want to say, first of all, like for whatever, I mean, I married <laughs> despite many things lining up for me to not maybe choose a good, good man to marry. I did. And I don't know if it was luck. I think some of it's definitely luck. I don't know if it was the universe, like giving me a big gift. Uh, Either way, I was very lucky to marry a good, good man and a very good father. And we, despite all of our sadness and disappointment and his very deep anger towards me at the end of our marriage. We, we both come from divorced families, um, divorced parents. And we both said to each other, like, we're going to take the high road with each other. And almost first, always almost my daughter. Um, and she was three at the time. So that's a, it's a super tough age. Um, which just means nothing other than like, she was young, you know, we decided to take the high road with each other. And I can honestly say we, we kept to that. Um, we both felt like it was the most important thing was to never say anything bad about the other one to her. Um, I knew what kind of pain that caused me as a kid. That's deeper than the pain of divorce. Absolutely. is like one parent shattering the image of another. And even if you think that person's a piece of shit, you know, um, saying so to your kid is deeply traumatizing. And we never did that. He's never done that. And I've never done that. And that, that's a big piece. Um, and if we had stuff with the, and it's like, look, it's also not perfect. Do I think she, this, you know, she is unscathed in this process? Definitely not. And, you know, did some of our own stuff seep through because 
she's a, you know, she is our, our child and can sense and feel things, of course. But we never, we never did the thing where we pitted her in between us. Um, and that made all the difference. And the things that work, I mean, everything just kind of stemmed from that, right? If the, if the kid is first, um, it makes all the other stuff very easy. I don't ever have to question if he's going to put her first, uh, if he wants to be there, if he's going to show up. And now that I'm sober, he doesn't have to question that either. I, you know, he, it was very tricky and dicey with me in the first couple of years of our separation. Cause I was in the, the deepest part of my like drinking and starting to get sober. And I wasn't there. I wasn't, I, you know, a lot of times when I had her, I would give, I would have my mom take care of her or someone else. I, I couldn't deal. And he called me on it every single time, you know, called me on my shit with her and I call him on his shit with her too. So I don't know. I think we both with the co-parenting, like we split 50, 50. It is, we still like each of us values the relationship that the other one has with her and respects, um, our, the other person's role as, as the other parent, you know? So it's like, I, I see it. If I like picture it mentally as an image, I see him and I having our, our shit and our, our like sort of messy adults, human, ridiculous, repulsive games with each other at like earth level, like below, you know, the surface. And then above that in an elevated state is our relationship with her and her. And we've managed to keep it that way. Um, and we're lucky. Like, And then over time, he and I have grown to be friends. And that doesn't always happen either. But I think we were two people that really loved each other and really, like, really liked each other. And you know, through a lot of therapy on both sides, we were able to get, no, it's not therapy with the purpose of like making us be friends, but we, you know, we were able to forgive and I don't know. It's, it's a very lucky situation. I think co-parenting is, it can be, I, the saddest thing I see is, is the kid, when the kids become, you know, collateral and become sort of pawns for personal agendas between parents. And I also get that, you know, it's like, I don't know why I was able to do that. We have been able to do the thing that we did with her, but I, I am, I'm grateful for it every single day. Yeah. I'm interested to hear sort of what the intersection of sobriety recovery and motherhood has been like for you. Like, how would you say that being a mother made it easier and harder or like, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. Um, that's great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think so that is an area. I mean, that's a whole book's worth of thoughts, but the, the, the thing that indicated to me that I had a capital P problem that I was in very deep trouble was that my, my first and worst bottom was with her. It involved her. And I, 
I was more pissed off that I got caught than I was that I did the thing to her. And that for me was like, it was so confounding. Like I love this because I, I loved her more than life itself, you know, and I knew that that was real. Even if I couldn't touch it sometimes because I was sick, I knew that that was real. And yet I couldn't stop drinking for her. I didn't want to stop drinking for her. Oftentimes I felt like she was in the way. Um, that was very painful. It's among the most painful things that there is, you know, to be a mother who drinks and to be a mother who drinks problematically um, is one of the, the deepest, you know, sources of shame for, for women, for sure. And certainly was for me. So there, there's that. Um, but it's also like, that was a gift. You know, it was, I don't know that many other things could have pointed it so clearly to me that I was in as much trouble as I was in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate that honesty. That's. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, you know, and then the one thing that I was unwilling to lose or that I knew I wouldn't want to be alive if I didn't have her, didn't have custody of her. If I wasn't, she wasn't in my life. If I couldn't be her mother it was the only thing that was painful enough for me to try to change. Mm-hmm. Was everything else eh, I could have done without, you know, I'd lost jobs. I had, crashed cars. I had broken every kind of relationship. I had gone against myself and my body. I had had abortions. I had, I don't know. I was willing to, to really let go of anything else, but that I knew that that was a thing that I wouldn't want to live with. I'd rather be, I would have rather died than to live that way. So in that way, you know, she kind of said she saved me or that love saved me and got me to try um, but it wasn't enough to keep me sober, but it, it did get me to try and to keep going. Yeah. The way that you phrased that too, that that was the only thing that was painful enough, right. To get you to try or to change. I'm interested, personally, very interested in just like pain as a topic to discuss or like the purpose of pain or just the role of pain, especially with sort of our cultural designation of pain as bad, right? And like something to be avoided at all costs. And like, I've been Mm -hmm. curious within myself of, is that always true? How might we flip the script on that? So I'd love to hear what you think. I know this is a huge topic, right? Could also be a book in itself. but (laughs) the topic of pain. I love it. And I have always been deeply interested in it too. Um, I've, I recently reread this essay in Khalil Gibran's book, The Prophet, and he has a whole essay on pain. But the, the line that I keep thinking about and I keep running through is um, pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Hmm. And for me, that is says, says it all. Like, you have the pain has a purpose always, always, always. Um, and in the case of this, the pain was a shell that had to break because it unclosed my understanding. And my understanding—that's like the universal understanding of of who I really am, what I'm here for, of 
and in, in the case of this, it, of this, the love that I had for my daughter that was bigger than this addiction. Um, it had to be that kind of pain, like the cracking of that shell had to cause enough pain in me that I would sit up straight and listen and look. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm deeply interested in pain. I just did a whole podcast interview basically about pain because that's, we, we just kept going and going. So I, I have always been interested in as a subject. And for me, the pain is the thing that I have basically, you know, a lot of us, but I, I think I've done an exceptional job of creating entire lives and personas to try to avoid it. And when I'm willing to sit with it, when I'm willing to look at it, when I'm willing to see it as like friendly hands that are working on me, uh, I, that's where it all, all the transformation has come from, but God, it takes a lot to get there. Yeah. I also think that's, or at least in my experience, that's one of those things that I so want to be like, acknowledge it once and then be done. Right. That's like, okay, pain isn't like, I don't have to avoid like the amount of pain that I caused to myself and others in the periods of like destructive drinking, thinking about Mm -hmm. that was essentially pain that was created by like, I made those life choices essentially to avoid other pain. Like for me, I I think that's what a lot of addiction is. Right. Like the great joke. Right. Right. And that how uh, you, you said something, um, in a piece of writing on your blog, I think it was in response to um, someone's letter, right? Like I know you answer people's questions and stuff like that. And um, the line that that I pulled out of that, that I loved so much, you said, the problem isn't that you're dying. It's that you think dying shouldn't hurt so bad, but it should let it. And like that to me was mm-hmm. like, ugh, that's everything. Like it's just, yeah. <laughs> God. yeah. Oh my God. I love that guy. It was a, um, it was a guy that he said that he's like, I feel like I'm dying you now. Um, in sobriety, I feel like I'm dying. Yeah, but that is, that's it, right? Um, but the, the, it's one thing to hear that and to shake your head and to know that it's true even in your body, but when you're in it, it hurts. You know, it hurts. Uh, I do know, you know, now that having, like when I'm in pain, because I have withstood great pain and I've seen what's on the other side, you, and maybe you experience this too, you, you have this small sense, sometimes it's the tiniest that on the other side of that pain will be, will be something beautiful. Like, just hold on, just hold on, just hold on, you know? So is that something that you just, I mean, you just have to remind yourself of that? Like, how do you cope with, you know, current pain? Um, well, I have so many more tools than I used to have, you know, like I, I had one primary tool for a long time and it was drinking and it worked for a while. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm laughing because it's true. Like it's, it reminds me that this, I've, I think I've shared this before. There was an art installation in a coffee shop um, that I used to go to in, in LA that had this big, you know, the text was in lights and it was huge. And it said, the trouble with trouble is that it starts out as fun. And like, it works. <laughs> yes, like drinking totally. works. Listen, like it's, it's no, fun until it's not. It's, it solves your problems until it doesn't. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we do it. Like it, it works. But if it didn't work, we wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, you know, it's, that's why it's so powerful. God, it does work. And then, um, and then it doesn't. And, but I, 
you know, I had other things in there. Like I'd always been a runner. I'd always done some yoga or whatever. But my primary coping skill was drinking. And that only, as we know, created further pain at some point. So I have, since in sobriety, you're forced to, you know, because not drinking is not a replacement for drinking, just not drinking. So you have to find ways to deal with the pain that is surely going to come along with everything else that you have been, you know, blunting out for so long. And, you know, so I, I have, dude, the things I have to do on a daily basis just to stay like on the better side of middle are ridiculous. Um, and I'm someone who is in pain a lot. Like I am. Um, I, I guess the answer to that would be, I have learned to take it a little less seriously sometimes. Um, and I have learned that my story about my pain is, is far more painful than the pain itself. Um, so I have put a lot of people in my world who can help me take myself out of the story, who can sort of tell me the truth about what's going on. Um, I mean, I have therapists, I have friends, I have, I go to meetings sometimes still, I have a lot of people. Um, I pray every day, first thing, last thing. I do a lot of yoga. I move my body a lot. Like you asked about if I know the truth in my body. And for me, understanding that my, like, I've always been very physically connected. I've always been very embodied. Um, or, or rather, I've always been a very physical person. Like I express myself a lot through moving my body. And I feel things through moving my body. And so I use that as like, my body knows, like it knows what's up. And um, I, I use it to like find the truth a lot. You know, like if something doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. I can tell if something feels feels good. And and for us, like for me, feeling good, uh, the things that I thought felt good, those aren't really. You know, I've had to relearn all that like language, like adrenaline and sort of drama and intensity isn't necessarily quote-unquote good um so I deal I don't know man I deal with pain like I'm still figuring that out I I feel like I'm going through a second sobriety I mean I am with with all the men's stuff and that has been more if you know equally if not more painful than getting sober from alcohol yeah I hear you what's it like for you when other people particularly people who are struggling to get or stay sober reach out to you like with their pain like how do you hold space for that without trying to fix it or i don't know like i that's something that i struggle with i do too for sure and it's like a a learned thing um but the thing is i've always been very comfortable with other people's pain always like even when i was a huge mess um people came to me with their pain and for whatever reason, I could hold it or without taking it on. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't eat their pain, but I, I could hold it for them. Um, and I could see what was true for them. 
outside of the story that they were telling themselves or whatever circumstances were causing so much pain. Um, so, but, but to answer, I mean, it, it's something I'm learning, you know, I teach, I, I lead retreats and there's always a lot of people that are in pain and I talk to a lot. I receive a lot of emails of people that are in pain, you know, the topic that we, that, that I, you know, the world that I've sort of placed myself in or I was placed in is a place that's rife with a lot of pain. It's also a lot, a lot of beauty, but there's a lot of pain in there. Um, so I don't know. I, I have learned like how to do that and I'm still learning how to do that. Um, I, I do know for sure. I don't necessarily try to fix people. Um, I don't think I'm like that type of archetype. Like I'm not a helper type necessarily. Um, but I try, but I, I, I don't even know how to answer that because I feel like I intuitively know I, I can energetically feel when I'm with people closer to me, it's much harder. Right? Yeah. That I'm not good at doing um, that. I will, especially, you know, like parents, I, I think my primary pain was trying to eat their pain <laughs> and fix their pain. So it's different for that. But with people that I, you know, cause it's, it can, it can totally swallow you if you, if you let it, there's a lot of, a lot of pain in this, this world that we're in. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how to answer that really. No, but I mean that, that the truth is the answer, right? Like it's not, there isn't like a, here's the three things to do. Yeah, to so I, I cleanse myself and then I put on frankincense and then I, you know, it's like, I don't know. But I feel like, I mean, even for like probably a bias, even inherent in me asking that question is this belief that pain is something that has to be fixed, right? Like that, like if I flip that a little bit and look at like what, what even like moved me to ask that question, it's like that desire to, especially like you said, with the people that were closest to like to fix it or to take it away or to not be able to have as much, I don't know, grace with it is that I internalize the, the belief that like pain is bad and we need to get rid of it. Right. It's like there's something in there. Totally. The more yeah, telling no, thing I think was like my question. Then, Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's funny. Right. The, the thing I think, you know, was more true for me is like the, the letter that you mentioned that we just talked about was a letter from this guy who was in a lot of pain. And when I read letters like that, and when I read where people are really like, you can tell they're kind of at a bottom, they're at a, at a spot where they don't have much further to go and they have nowhere. And I, I, the first thing I read or I thought when I read his letter, this guy's name's Johnny or that's what I called him was, Oh, this is so good. This is so good. You are in a good, good spot. Like you're lucky. Um, that's a lot of times how I feel like my friend a couple of months ago who has been struggling with drinking and, not drinking and getting sober and she was in a really bad place. And she, she finally called and she was like, I just had an eight day bender and I have my kids and I don't know what to do. And I was like, fuck, this is awful. But I was also like, good, this is where it needed to, you know, this is the pain you needed to be in. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing that I would love to ask you about before we wrap up, um, you know, you mentioned the the retreats and the writing retreats that you lead and co-lead. And I'm, I'm interested what to know what you think works when helping someone 
sort of like to go deep and unlock their own, you know, narratives that shape their own life story, like to get, is there anything, I don't know if it's like an exercise or something practical or something that you, that you guys do on, you know, the types of retreats, like something that can be helpful for someone who's interested in sort of going deeper into their own pain or story or stuff, whether yeah. that's to write about it for them or not, or, you know, whatever. right. Yeah, no, I, um, the retreats, um, the retreats I teach, I co-teach with Meadow DeVore and, um, for me, I, I haven't been able to, like, I, I needed to be led into that to, you know, I, I think we can do a lot of work on our own, but I needed to be, I think there's, um, nothing like a teacher, like a true teacher who can, who can show you or, or at least bring you into this space and then let you do the work. Um, so that's kind of what we do. I mean, I, for me, there, there's this connection that I made first subconsciously and then consciously about doing work in your body and having that be a gateway to, to your truth and your story and what's really going on. And that's what we do on the retreats. That's why we pair yoga with it. It's not like yoga, like we're going to do a sweaty vinyasa class. It's like, we're going to use yoga in the truest sense, the breathing, not just the asana practice, but the breathing, the meditation, the teachings to as a way to get at self-inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they're all about. And for me, it's been, and for Meadow, I mean, she's been doing this work for a long time too. And she kind of put that puzzle piece together as well. So when we came together, it was like, oh my God, we both were thinking about the same things and kind of doing it. And she, you know, like she had a life coaching background and had been doing that for years and years and years. And she saw that people that were women that were very smart and very accomplished and had a lot of the tools, the same tools she had were not getting better. Um, And she realized there's this piece, this like body piece, this, um, yoga piece and yoga like I want to be clear it could be anything that puts you in to your body um that 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 was like this missing piece so we started to put those things together and and that's that's where I've witnessed a lot of magic and then it's like we aren't doing anything you know you kind of set people up for it and you plant these seeds and then they do the work Mm -hmm. they do all the work yeah yeah, no, I, it's, it's funny. It's like a full circle to what we were talking about at the very beginning about like your body knows when something's true. <laughs> I love that. Um, so I think that's a really good place to, to start to wrap up in the way that we end these episodes are with what we call community questions. So it's a series of nine rapid fiery questions that the Real Talk Radio listeners want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So cool. nine random questions if you're down for like that. Like behind the actor's studio style. <laughs> I know, right? Um, <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure lately? Oh, I'm so bad at these rapid fire questions. Um, good God. I, I, I'm going to say buttered popcorn cause I just have had it like a few days in a row, oh like gosh. movie popcorn. I, it was, I don't know, maybe five years ago that I bought like a $20 air popper 
from Amazon to make just like air pop popcorn. It's like the best purchase of my life. I love popcorn. So good. It's so good. It's so good. I go to the movie theater and buy it. I'm like, Hey, what's up? I'm here again. I'm just going to buy popcorn. I'm not watching a movie. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Um, so uh, obviously we've talked about a lot of changes, like big changes, but the next question, what's one change that you have made that was really tough at the time, but worth it in the end, maybe something we haven't talked about. Hmm. Um, God, everything has changed. Um, I don't know if this counts. Um, I don't know if this counts, but it's what came to mind first, but I thought that I, um, would be afraid to travel like as a sober person. And I have, I like kind of did exposure therapy by just traveling and and making myself travel. And now it's one of the things I like crave and look forward to most. So I kind of, it was, it was really hard. I thought I would never be able to travel and be sober and be like, like it. And it's, it's like the thing I love the most. One of the things I love the most about traveling or about being sober. That's wonderful. So of course that counts. Any answer is the right answer, right? Like it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So this next question maybe is pertinent with the book you're working on. What helps you to stick with a long-term project or goal? Ugh nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have the answer to that yet. Cause I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. I don't like, there's no good answer. I could be like accountability or schedule. No, none of those things work on me. Um, the pain of procrastination, honestly, I have no answer for that. But listen, the pain of procrastination, that, that to me is the answer. Like that it's yeah. the times when I do, let's say like my best writing or whatever. It's when like, I just, I can't with myself anymore. Like it's like eating at me right. that I'm not doing the thing. And like, I, yeah. I yeah. also wish I had a better answer. Like, well, I light this candle and I sit down at 9am and I do that. Like, no, it's egg like, timer I basically no. have to get to the point where I hate myself. And then I'm gonna- <laughs> yeah, self-loathing is also, is always a great motivator for me. Self-loathing and pain. Oh God. Um, what's one thing that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Mm. Mm. Dude. Um, this sounds ridiculous, but I don't know that there is anything. I think I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing all the scary things right now. That's that doesn't sound ridiculous. That sounds like a very awesome no, place to be. Like in. there's it it would have been um it, like a month ago or two months ago, it would have been telling men what I want, like like telling men um how, what I actually want instead of trying to play some game to get what I want. Um that would have been the scary thing. And I I started telling men what I want in in certain cases and like not leaving myself in that way. And that was the scariest thing that I could imagine at that time. Yeah. So uh, everything else, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Quitting coffee? <laughs> I'm really afraid to do that. What's something that a lot of people seem to do that you don't do? Ooh. Mm. Um, wear like adult clothes, like get dressed in adult clothes for the day. I seem to see a lot of people out in the world doing that. Like I'm looking out the window and yeah, they're dressed like people have jeans on. I don't really get dressed anymore. I also don't. I relate to that so hard. (laughs) Same thing also for like 
makeup and other shit like it's a lot of yeah. people seem to do that and like it's, it's there is a version of me somewhere that does all those things like in the alternate I reality know. there's like very well dressed nicole with like banging lipstick but not, yeah. not in this reality at all. no no it's not um what advice would you give yourself five years ago oh my god i don't even know who i was five years ago um hang on yeah hang on Yeah. I can't even go say more than that. Just like keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. When you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? Mm. Um, writing this book and having um, a summer with my daughter. Yeah. Doing summer things with her. I mean, Summer in New England is like, it's like the glory, you know, we get like two months of glory. That's, I mean, in the Pacific Northwest as well. So yes, I I hear you. (laughs) So looking down the next few months is like as good as it gets, no matter what is going on in life Um, when you're a New Englander or a Pacific Northwester, it's like, oh, this is the good part. Right. This is what I waited for. I earned this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So the next question is about books. I know you've mentioned a couple already, but um, are there a couple of books that you would say have either had a really big impact on you or that you find yourself rereading or recommending often? Yeah. Like recently or just overall? Over anything, anything. Oh, good Lord. Um, Yes. So I have I have a post on my blog that's like 11 books that changed my life. And there are a couple in there um, that I recommend a lot when people are in deep, 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 deep pain. And they are um, when they are in the struggle, like the big struggle, like the struggle they've never felt before. And they feel like um, you can just tell that they're just holding on. Um, I always recommend Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart. Ugh, yes. That book was like a gateway to so many things for me. So there's that. And I'll just say Augustine Burroughs too, because we talked about him, his book, like I love him as a writer, just as a straight up great, funny, smart, sarcastic writer. But his book, this is how, um, has so uh, quite a few essays in it that for me were life changing and only he could get away with the tone that he uses. Um, it's a quote unquote self-help book, but it's like the anti self-help book. Yeah, that's I, one. I love him too. <laughs> yeah. And then people always ask what my very favorite book is. Um, or not people always ask, but that's a question humans get a lot, right? Like people read, um, what's your favorite book? And my my favorite book um, is The History of Love and by Nicole Krause. And it's the reason I named my daughter Alma. And I always, if people want a novel um, and like, it's always the one I recommend. It's stunning. I will have to check that out. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. um, And I think is the thing that, that I I'm listening to the most myself right now. And it's go in, not out. Like go inside yourself, not outside for all the things. Yeah. Go in for the answers, go in for the truth, go in for the 
permission going for the go in, not out. Yeah. For the permission, especially. I love that. So mm-hmm. what's the best place for people to find your work and say, hi, do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. I, I mean, my website has all my writing on it and I, I do always read all my emails. I don't have, um, I don't have the opportunity to respond to them all, but I, I do read them and that people can get me through me on my website. But my favorite, I, I love Instagram of, of all the social media things that I'm definitely very active there. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for having this conversation. This was wonderful. This was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Ellie. Hi, Ellie. What's up? (laughs) So I'm going to ask you some questions, and we're going to do a fun little like rapid-fire round where I get to be nosy and ask you things. How does that sound? Yeah, man. Let's do it. What is your current guilty pleasure? Um, oh my gosh. Uh, there's a show called Ghost Adventures on Travel Channel. Have you heard of it? I have not, but it already sounds amazing. Oh man. So I'm hardcore binging this show right now. And it's like, oh man, if Zach Bagans ever actually heard this, I'd be like fangirling and so embarrassed. But like, so basically it's these three dudes and they've been on TV for like 13 years and they're really douchey. Like, that's the important thing to emphasize is that these guys are, like, I, they're just really full of themselves and, like, way over dramatic. And they, they're they kind of mean to each other. And it's just it's just trash TV. It's so much fun. And my boyfriend and I, like, we watch the show together and just make all these comments about, oh, man, like, Aaron's going to do this. And, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, Zach is good. Like, I don't know. It's just this weird obsession with, like, a not super popular show. And it's the best. That's so fun. It's, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for TV shows that you can watch with another person, like a best friend or a partner that you uh, can kind of talk during them, right? Like, my husband and I are mm-hmm. like that with the HGTV show Love It or List It, which, like, I mean, it's fine. Oh, it's tough. it's a good show. But it's basically we're just like, don't do that or that's stupid or this, this. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> as if they can hear us. It's so funny. Um, yeah, and we like rewind it a lot to like watch their reactions because they'll they're like so overdramatic. They'll hear like a ghost like bump something, and they're like, "Oh my god, bro, did you hear that?" And it's just it's so obnoxious. We're like, "Shut up and like listen to the ghost," and it's just the best. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. Um, what's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Um, <laughs> I'm I like a protein shake. I have basically just like uh, protein powder and skim milk every day, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay, so let's say it's your dream weekend breakfast, and you can't have that, and someone's going to cook you anything you want. What do you want? <laughs> See, okay, this is funny because uh, I had someone ask me that recently, and I was like trying to convince, them, like, no, like for real, I don't care about breakfast food. So I think if I would just was like, I, I get to start my day with any meal. I mean, it'd probably be like a steak or something. <laughs> hey, you know what? Breakfast is a made up thing, right? Like we don't, that's not real. So you can eat whatever you want at any time of day. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, if you had an extra $100 and you had to spend it on something fun that's just for you, how would you spend it? A massage. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I feel like I agree with that. There is nothing better than a good massage. 
I know. And I'm like trying to save a whole bunch of money right now. And that's like one of the first things that goes out of the budget as soon as I'm like, well, I got something coming up or I'm trying to save. And it's like, buy massages. Yeah. No, I wish I, you all. I hear you. I'll see you next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, who are a couple of your favorite people to follow on social media? Oh, man. Um, crap. You know, I've been listening to this show for like how many years now? And I used to have a list going because I was like, one day I'm going to be on the show. And she's asking me that. And I had a list for a long time, and then I forgot it. Um, I will say Drake on Cake is yes. one. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> and then I want to I, – I don't know if her handle is Haley Cakes, but it's like this uh, baker, I think, in Texas, and she just does these really fun videos of these, like, cakes and cookies that she makes. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I have not, but I always love looking at desserts on Instagram, so. Yes. That's one of my favorites. Um and then I feel like there used to be one other okay, um, a, a title, Your Best Friend Jamie, <laughs> because that's how you refer to her all the time. Um, I follow her on Instagram, and the other day I saw something on, uh, like, I was scrolling really fast, and I read it, and I was like, oh, Jamie would love that. I need to tag her. And then I, like, scrolled up. I was like, oh, Jamie posted that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's the best. So funny. <laughs> I love that. Um, so the last question, what's one of your favorite books or a book that's had a big impact on you? Okay. See, this is the thing I like. I did write a list of books and I'm going to have to save it for at some point <laughs> another day. I'll give you, I think I've like eight things written down. Um, I will say one that has had the biggest impact in the last year of my life uh, is a book called On My Own, The Art of Being a Woman Alone by Florence Falk. And it is basically... So Falk is a psychoanalyst and she's been doing that for like two decades and wrote this book. Um, I'm like, I pulled up, I'm, I'm nerdy. I pulled up like the Amazon description so I could like get it right. Um, but it's just this amazing book she wrote about the concept of being a woman alone, a term she prefers because as a distinct category, uh, as a distinct category within women's culture, it formally elevates our presence and status, helps us to achieve visibility and expression, and allows us to redress our marginalized state. Mm, see, I have not heard of that one. You were just giving me another book I to can't. read. I love it. It's so good. Like I, It was the first, first or second book I read after I left my now ex-husband. So that was like it was just such a perfect read. And it, I literally just walked into a library one day and I was just sitting there and I picked it up. I didn't know anything about it. So it's a fantastic read. There you go. Perfect book at the perfect time. Mm -hmm. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small but powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love yeah. for you to share maybe first why you decided to support the show and your favorite thing about being in the community. Well, um, it feels like three lifetimes ago when you started the show, but I, I mean, it sort of was, it's almost two years. Yeah. Yeah. So things were way different back then. And um, I used to live in Atlanta, Georgia. And anyone that knows Atlanta, the traffic is horrendous. And my commute was at least an hour, but often like two hours. So I loved your long form podcast. And like, I was just so into it. And I felt like we were buddies and you were like there with me during my commute. And then um, as soon as the option came up to support, like, I was like, oh man, I, I get so much value out of this, like even more than I get out of, I don't know, Netflix. 
So for me, it was a no brainer. Just like, I definitely wanted to support it and I didn't want it to go away. And then when it did start to become like a, well, I mean, money has to come from somewhere. (laughs) Like that was a conversation. And I was like, oh man, if people don't fund this shit, I'm gonna be really mad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. You're so sweet. That's funny. Um, um, go ahead. And so Sorry. My, I guess like, as far as the second question, like being a part of the community, um, I want, I feel like I need to engage more in the community. Like every once in a while I pop on there and I'm like, Oh, like this is a fun little conversation. I, I didn't see was there. So it seems like there's still like so much more that I haven't even delved into with the community, but, um, I love what you're doing with every, with all of it. And like the squad pods, I, I think are definitely the, the highlight reel. Yeah, isn't it fun to just get to know kind of like-minded people that are so different in so many ways and kind of the common Mm -hmm. thread is, hey, let's be honest about our lives. I I don't know. I find there's something really empowering about that. Yeah, it's my it's my jam, like uh, raw, raw plus honesty, raw honesty, like, like, get it. That's awesome. (laughs) Raw honesty. I love that. Um, so to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 